Hello and welcome back to the Happy Dog Podcast. In this mini-series, we are discussing lots of ideas around dog training and learning philosophy. In today's episode, we are going to talk about the foundation of nearly all dog training, classical conditioning. We'll find out why there is a phrase, Pavlov is always on your shoulder. So grab a coffee, get comfy, and let's get into it. of Pavlov's dogs. I'm sure it rings a bell. Okay, it's a terrible joke, but it is a good way to remember what we are going to talk about. Classical conditioning is one of the simplest forms of learning. It occurs from simplest organisms right up to us. I'm not saying that we're the most like highest form because sometimes I do wonder, but every animal experiences classical conditioning. In its simplest form, classical or associative learning is learning an association between two things. So when one thing happens, another will follow. If you pick your dog's lead up, they're going to get excited. If you pick your dog's bowl up, they're going to expect food. It is a predictable relationship between two things. Pavlov's experiments embodied this predictable association. So Pavlov was originally studying digestion digestion in dogs. He had dogs hooked up to loads of apparatus, and one of which measured how much the dog salivated. When it was feeding time, a bell would sound to tell his research assistants to feed the dog. And because they were measuring how much the dog salivated, they originally found that when the dog's food was put in front of them, the dogs would salivate. But over time, they noticed that the dogs were actually salivating before the food was even put down in front of them. So at the sound of the bell, the dogs would salivate. This observation completely changed his research focus. He moved away from digestion and into how this associative learning happens. And it's associated or classical, so interchangeable terms. Let's dive a little deeper into classical conditioning and its impact upon how dogs are learning. So the fundamental principle of classical conditioning is that an initially meaningless or neutral stimulus is presented just before something that is meaningful or unconditioned. So in Pavlov's experiment, it was the bell, completely neutral. Dogs had heard bells, you can hear a bell, it doesn't mean anything until it is paired with an unconditioned stimulus. So the terms in this can get a little bit complicated, especially maybe on an audio format. Sometimes it is a little bit easier to see them written down. So, and even I get tripped up on them sometimes. I really have to think about what it is that I'm describing. So the unconditioned stimulus is something that is presented to an animal that elicits a response. And this isn't taught in any way. You salivate at food because your digestive process is beginning. Um, It's not a taught, you're not learning anything. It's it's just innate. So presenting food, 
you start to salivate. If there's a puff of air into your eye, you blink. If there's a loud noise, it'll make you jump. You're not learning any of these things. They're just things that happen. It's just, a, your just, body is just giving a response to the stimuli. You, you don't have you don't have any learning. So a small baby will do these responses as much as a, an adult will. So a quick one that we can quickly do, like right now on on a podcast, is I want you to think about a really sour lemon sweet. Now my mouth's already filled with saliva just from that sentence. We don't have any control over the production of the saliva. It just happened as a response to thinking about that sour flavor. So how does this all fit together? Okay, so so far we have three elements. We have a neutral stimulus, an unconditioned stimulus, and an unconditioned response. So the neutral stimulus is the bell, an unconditioned stimulus is the presentation of food, and the unconditioned response is salivation. If we present the neutral stimulus before the unconditioned stimulus enough times, then our brains will short circuit that. And the neutral stimulus, the ringing of the bell, will elicit the salivation without any presentation of food occurring. We then call that neutral stimulus a conditioned stimulus because we have taught our bodies to salivate at the sound. And that salivation actually is then called, is called the conditioned response because it's in relation to the conditioned stimulus. So it changes its name. The response is the same, but because it's um, being elicited by the originally neutral stimulus, it changes the name. If presentation of food arrived and the dog salivated, it would go back to being an unconditioned response. But once we've done the conditioning process, that then changes its name. And I think that's sometimes where people get a little bit tripped up. And it's the, it's the learning process that changes the name of these two things. Oh, we got there. Okay, so let's put it into real life because sometimes it is easier to understand things when we are um, discussing them in real life rather than kind of a little bit more hypothetical. So let's start with Pavlov's experiment. Go through it again, because I think it's a, it's a very straightforward experiment and it's really simple to get our heads around. The neutral stimulus is the bell, okay? So before any learning occurs, we hear a bell, we don't start salivating. It doesn't mean anything. The unconditioned um, stimulus is the food and the unconditioned response is salivation. After presenting the bell prior to feeding, the dogs associated the sound of the bell with the food coming and the bell therefore elicited the same response. That's critical. One thing to note about the, all of this is that the dog is not required to perform the behavior to get the food. Whether the dog salivates or not, the food is coming. Pavlov's example can be used at your home. If your alarm goes off in the morning and the first thing you do is feed your dog, they will become conditioned to the sound of the alarm going off, predicting that food is about to come. So main two things you need to be aware of are the presentation of the two stimulus is independent of the animal's behavior. Bell sounds, food is presented, dog gets to eat, whether it salivates or not. If it's dry kibble, maybe they're not salivating. The behaviour involved is a reflex response. So salivating, blinking, sweating, jumping in response to a loud noise. They're all reflex responses. It's not sitting, lying down. That's not classical conditioning. We're going to look at that next week. That's more on the operant side of the 
of the training um, ideals. So the most important element that affects classical conditioning is the manner in which everything's paired together. The order of events is really important. If you presented food, then the bell went off and then you got to eat it. It wouldn't it wouldn't really have the same impact. The order in which everything goes is vital. It has to go conditioned stimulus, then unconditioned stimulus. Sorry, no, neutral stimulus, then unconditioned stimulus. I wrote it down wrong. Producing them at the same time, which is known as simultaneous conditioning, is really weak. And that's because of overshadowing. If a delicious bowl of my favourite food was put in front of me and I heard a bell, I might register it, but I might also be taking in the aroma of the food, really looking forward to it. So if they're presented at the same time, for me, the food is probably going to overshadow everything that's going on in the environment. Overshadowing is where something has a greater presence um, than the other thing. So, yeah, I I had a really bad habit when I was training to be a dog trainer that my hand would sit in my treat pouch. And, and sometimes even now I catch myself doing it. And that can then overshadow the dog's learning process because they aren't really listening to what I'm saying because they're like, oh, she's going to give me a treat. She's going to give me a treat. Give me a treat. That's like a really easy example of overshadowing. If you present them the wrong way round, um, so if the like I was saying, if you present the food, then the bell, it it, it doesn't. It, it's it's really hard for the, the brain to pick up that association. We also have to be really aware of how close in time these two things happens. If a bell goes off and then an hour later you get some food, that's not really going to work. And I think even if it's a minute or two, it's such a long gap between a bell and then food that it is hard for the brain to make that association. And it is thought that the ideal is half a second. So bell, food, really quickly. Um, obviously, it's quite tricky to get things that close in real life, but it gives you an idea of how closely together these two things have to occur. We use classical conditioning a lot when it comes to clicker training. So that 0.5 seconds can be achieved a little bit easier by using a clicker because trying to make an association and get food into your dog's mouth can be really hard in half a second. I think even the best dog trainers would struggle with that, especially without overshadowing. You know, if you've got your dog to see something and then we're feeding it, if you've only got half a second, that food's probably going to have to be fairly close to the dog and they can smell it, it overshadows it. Clicker training is purely a positive reinforcement based um, training activity. And we'll discuss it in more detail in the next episode. But trust me when I say this is where we want to be. Clicker training really helps to empower owners, train their dogs. And it helps, really helps when we're, we're trying to work with a fearful, abused or dog who's phobic of things. But you do have to have good timing and coordination because we need that contingency to be really short. So clicker training is a mechanical little box that you press. It makes a clicking sound. And um, I've got one here. So if your dog is clicker trained, be prepared. Makes that kind of noise. Um, and we teach the dog that when they hear the clicker, they get some food. So initially that click is a neutral stimulus. We then feed the dog. The dog then learns that the clicker predicts food, the clicker becomes a conditioned stimulus and the food becomes a conditioned response. 
it's very important that the clicker is always followed by food. And so the dog makes a really strong relationship between the two things. It's really useful in helping dogs to create associations in a positive way. So we can use clicker training or any kind of classical conditioning to teach the dogs that, that something predicts something good. So when we're working with animals who are scared of something, we can rewire the brain a little bit and teach them that when they see the scary dog, good things happen to them. So dog equals good thing. It's slightly different because the dog isn't neutral. It does elicit a fear response. So it's not quite the same as bell food salivation, but we can, originally the, the item could be quite neutral. So instead of using dogs, let's use, um, a, 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 it's an old one, but it's one I always remember when I started, black bin bags on the side of a road. Don't really get it now because everyone has wheelie bins. But when I first started dog training, we used to put our rubbish out in black bin sacks and we used to be sat on the side of the road. The bin lorry would come past, pick them all up, put them in the truck and drive off. And a number of dogs were always quite scared of that kind of black figure on the side of the road, probably smelled pretty bad to them as well. So initially, that's kind of a neutral thing. It shouldn't elicit anything one way or the other. It could be that it was neutral until the wind rustled it and then it became scary. But we can use counter conditioning to teach the dog that scary thing equals good thing so scary thing is good and that's a lot of what we use in dog training we see something that the dog's not keen on or is neutral and we want them to have a, a positive emotional response to it the we can do we can present the slightly scary thing and then present something good so that the dog then starts to think oh I get it. When black bag is on side of the road, good things happen to me. So that must mean that it's a good thing. My favourite example is the ice cream van. You hear that little twinkly, twonky music um, of the ice cream van. And every time I say this to people I'm working with, like a little grin appears on their face. And it's because when we were younger, we would hear that twinkly, twonky music of the ice cream van. And it reminds us of hot summer days, the positive reinforcement of like, ice cream. Um, it always reminds me of like summers when I was a kid. It's a good feeling. It's a conditioned emotional response. The twinkly twonky music is a neutral stimulus, but because it has been paired so many times with um, the positive reinforcement of getting an ice cream, it takes on its own meaning. So conditioned emotional responses are really, really important in dog training. And according to James O'Hare, pleasure-related responses motivate approach and contact. So we approach and contact the ice cream van. Whereas fear-related responses motivate escape and avoidance. And this makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. We should seek out life-sustaining reinforcers and we should avoid life-threatening ones. That makes complete sense. This research goes back years and years. And John Watson and his researcher, Rosaline Rayner, studied conditioned emotional responses around fear. Um, and the most famous is Little Albert, the Little Albert experiment, which would not get ethical approval these days. Sometimes these really old experiments, old psychological experiments, 
are really useful for understanding stuff but my word <laughs> passing an ethics committee with some of these would just not happen and so little Albert was a nine-month-old baby um, and he was exposed to a white rat and initially he was not fearful of this rat he was inquisitive he would play with the rat and um, he had a really nice relationship with this rat and after he built up, oh God, it's awful. It sounds awful when you say it aloud. After when he built up a relationship with this rat, they would present the rat and he would engage with it. And then they would strike a hammer on a metal pole behind him, which would make him jump. And they did it over and over and over again until you presented little Albert with the rat and he was visibly distressed by the sight of this rat. And actually, it generalised out to a fear of all white fluffy things, if I remember correctly. You, would just, would you, you just would not get ethical approval for that these days. Um, and that's a negative conditioned emotional response. And I think of that a lot when uh, people advocate for the use of shock collars. You present something, you shock the dog. You present something, you shock the dog. Eventually, you're going to create a pretty solid negative conditioned emotional response to whatever that stimulus was if it's the sight of other dogs if it's the sight of rabbits if it's the sight of people if it's the sight of cars whatever it is if it's paired enough times we're going to create a lot of problems around that but we can also do it the other way around you can pair something neutral a bell with something good and the sound of the bell is going to elicit those good feelings Okay, I feel like I'm giving you a lot of information, but it is really important to understand how we can condition something negatively and we can condition something positively. I use conditioned emotional responses a lot when it comes to behaviour modification, when a dog is unsure of something, is scared of something. If we can present that stimulus at a distance that the dog's not visibly scared, um, not displaying any um, body language which is worrying, we can say, see a dog, good things happen to you, often in the form of food. So therefore, if you see a dog, good things happen to you. See a dog, good things happen to you. And so therefore, the brain will start to short circuit that and start to anticipate in a positive way the sight of another dog. Then we can reduce the distance from the other dog. Repeat, reduce, repeat, reduce, repeat. And part of that is a little bit of systematic desensitization. I know another term, I'm sorry, I didn't come up with them. So this was developed in 1958 by Joseph Walt, and it was used to treat um, human phobias of things. So for me, it would be daddy long legs. I know they're ridiculous, but it's true. Um, and with humans, you would get them to visualize it, chat them through that, and then you would start to present the stimulus. But a lot of it is done through visualization initially obviously with dogs got that tool at our disposal um but we use it in real life training where we can gradually expose the dogs to scary stimuli at an intensity in which they can cope with and it also it often goes hand in hand with counter conditioning so we start to then pair the the sight of something with with good things it's got three main components to it generally although not always but generally we have a bit of a relaxation protocol so we get the dog in a nice relaxed state we create a hierarchy ranging from the least to the most problematic situations or distances or intensities. And then we introduce counter conditioning along the way. 
So if we had a push chair, like a dog that was scared of push chairs or wheelchairs, something like that, we might we might get the dog nice and relaxed, and then we're going to present the the push chair at fifty meters, so the dog can see it, but at a distance it's stationary, it's not moving, it doesn't have a crying child in it, it's really low. We can start to see the push chair good things happen, see the push, good things happen. And then we're going to gradually reduce the distance. So we're right, you know, over time, over repetitions, we're going to get right up to that push chair. Once we're happy at that stage, then maybe the push chair rolls away a little bit from the dog. We're going to reward that and build up a bit of movement away from the dog. Then we might build up a little bit of movement towards the dog. Then we might look at moving with the push chair. And gradually building it up, building it up, building it up, putting a child in the pushchair, walking on the road with it. So we're starting really easy, but we're gradually, really slowly getting to the point where the dog's super happy with the pushchair. Pretty much the opposite of this is flooding. Flooding is, I go out in cold sweats just thinking about it. Flooding is, is pretty much the exact opposite. So whereas uh, systematic desensitization is a really gradual exposure and gradually helps an animal to overcome a fearful stimulus. And, and, and it really ensures the dog that is happy at every single stage. In flooding, the fearful stimulus is presented all at once. So it's almost overwhelming. Uh, in the example that we use, so being scared of a pram, the, the, the pram would just be pushed up and around the dog. Maybe there'd be multiple prams. It would just be so like much so the theory behind it is the dog will experience such high levels of anxiety and fear that it will it, it, the the fear will just become extinct for me it would be um a room full of daddy long legs and you just go in and you realize that in that extreme situation the, the daddy long legs are fine and they're, they're not going to kill you with their sharp pointy teeth um it, it brings me out in so much anxiety just talking about it. Um, and it's the problem is, is it's still advocated today by really old school, outdated dog trainers. So dogs are subjected to flooding and they often become so traumatized by it that they lose control of their bowel and bladder because it is so scary and overwhelming. Think of the scariest position you can be in and being forced into it with no means of escape. And with dogs, you, you see it all the time when the, the dog will resist, not all the time, you know what I mean? It, the dog will resist flooding so intensely that they become aggressive and even more dangerous because their fight or flight response is so heightened that they just need to get out of it. It can result in the dogs forever associating the handler with negative experiences. And, and this often leads to dogs being given up and surrendered to rescue because they appear to be untreatable and owners will give up they'll stop training because it's not working but it just it's just so overwhelming and it's putting an animal into a position where they they can't escape it also teaches that no positive adaptive behaviors it doesn't teach dogs what they can do it doesn't teach them how to get out of a situation and it can make problems worse so quickly sensitive breeds can develop serious behavioral problems as the result of intense procedures such as flooding um, it's really worrying that it's even thought of as a solution. So I gave you a lot of information there. Think about it like this. Classical conditioning is all about making associations. And that is why Pavlov is always on our shoulders, because we are always making associations, whether they're good, whether they're bad. They are always happening. 
we can use it specifically in dog training to help make positive associations. We can help it help use it to help dogs overcome fear and anxiety and phobias. But it can be misused. And this is where you need to critically think about what you're viewing on social media and how what the what associations is the dog making? Is the dog making positive associations? Is the dog making negative associations? What is the long-term detriment of those associations? In its purest form, we're looking at neutral stimuluses becoming conditioned stimuluses. But as we move through dog training, we can use it to um, change the feelings that dogs have about certain things. Okay, I'm sure you've got some questions. If you have, Instagram them over to me. My handle is at pooches.galore. You can send me a Facebook message. It's facebook.com forward slash poochesgalore. You can email me. It's kim at poochesgalore.co.uk. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, share. Um, the more people that listen, the more I'm going to put them out because if no one listens, then I'm just talking into an abyss um, and I don't want to be doing that. So please share it if you enjoyed it. Um, I hope you did. I hope it all made sense. But if you have got questions, because it is quite a complex one, next week's operant conditioning and it is a little bit simpler. Um, so hopefully I will see you all next week. Thank you so much. Thank you.